In this episode of Ottawa Business Journal's Behind the Headlines, changes in the C-suite at Shopify, warmer weather heats up cottage sales, and the hype behind a made-in-Ottawa carbon capture technology. All this and more coming up right now. Behind the Headlines is brought to you by Nelligan Law, Ottawa's fierce, proven, and human law firm. Visit them at nelliganlaw.ca. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines for the week ending April 23rd, 2021. I'm Michael Curran from the Ottawa Business Journal. Behind the Headlines is a regular podcast from OBJ where we explore the most popular business stories. This episode marks the official start to our second season. Excited to be back with you and bringing you these headlines. As usual, I'm joined by two of my colleagues at Ottawa Business Journal, Peter Cavesi and David Sally. Hello to you both. All right, let's get right into this with four, story number one, which is about Shopify and Shopify's uh, highest ranking executives are leaving the Ottawa-based e-commerce uh, giant. Chief Talent Officer Brittany Forsyth, Chief Legal Officer Joe Frasca, and Chief Technology Officer Jean-Michel Lemieux are expected to end their lengthy tenures with the company in June. Dave, uh, you broke the story and you've been covering Shopify for the better part of a decade. What is the legacy that these executives leave behind? Well, Mike, it is it is quite a legacy, quite a lengthy legacy. Um, uh, all of these three have been at Shopify for a long time. Uh, back in the day when it was still in a little office in the Byward Market on York Street and uh, just this upstart e-commerce company that was going to arm the rebels, uh, as they said. You know, Brittany Forsyth, for example, the chief talent officer, uh, she was employee number 22 at Shopify when she was hired in 2010. To put that in perspective, she now oversees a workforce of in the neighborhood of 7,000 people around the world. So uh, she's been there almost right from the get-go and uh, uh, played just a... Uh, you know, a massive role in um, building out Shopify's workforce, developing it into one of those one of those companies that's just, um, I, I mean, a, a powerhouse in terms of obviously its technology, but its employee commitment as well. Uh, Toby Ludke, the the CEO, co-founder of Shopify, he really had high praise for Brittany, saying, um, you know, some of his or all of his, in fact, earliest and fondest memories of Shopify involve Brit in some way, shape, or form. Um, so that right there speaks volumes. Um, then of course you've got, uh, you've got the chief legal officer, Joe Frasca. He was the first lawyer, uh, Shopify ever hired, uh, in 2014. And as, um, as Toby called him, he is their first line and best line of defense. Uh, uh, you know, he builds out the legal culture there. Um, uh, Toby said, we ask a lot from our lawyers and, uh, he's always been there to, um, when they needed it. And, um, uh, you know, so again, huge, um, uh, you know, his contributions can't be uh, overstated. And then um, uh, finally, J.M. Lemieux, who, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, uh, has been at the company now for about six years. Um, they're VP of engineering. I uh, worked at uh, IBM before he came to Shopify. Um, and now he's the chief technology officer. And I mean, you look at all the technology Shopify has rolled out over the last few years, uh, whether it's, I mean, and we're not just talking about 
their e-commerce software that helps merchants build their sites. The Shopify has expanded into all kinds of areas in the last few years, mobile shopping apps, point of sale platforms, financial services products uh, that let merchants pay their bills and track their expenses all on the Shopify platform. Uh, JM has kind of been the, you know, he's been the mastermind leading all those efforts. Uh, when he started, there were 54 developers at Shopify. There are now, I mean, uh, there are now thousands of engineers around the world building Shopify's, um, uh, you know, products out every day. He's the leader of that. So these are, I mean, you, you know, three pillars of Shopify's leadership team, Mike, and um, they're, their their uh, their contributions to the company and the legacy they leave you know it's almost immeasurable uh, and it will be big shoes to fill. Yeah, in some ways it seems like a bit of a end of a, a an era, you know, for some of these uh, these uh, initial employees, especially with Brittany Forsyth. Peter, why do you think this story uh, was so popular and got so much uh, attention, and and is why is it so significant? I guess, Peter. Well, it's really the context and specifically the, uh, the the timing. So not to take anything away from Shopify's pre-pandemic growth and achievements and, and everything they built up over the, uh, the decade prior to the arrival of COVID-19, but really the last 12 months have just been absolutely spectacular to, to watch Shopify. Uh, this huge rush to, uh, to online shopping, both on the consumer side, as well as all these retailers who haven't previously uh, taken you know, e-commerce you know, as, as seriously until uh, they were forced to close their doors and find uh, alternative ways of connecting uh, with customers has just driven Shopify's revenue and share price, uh, th uh, you know, it just caused both to, uh, to, to skyrocket. What's interesting, though, is that holding on to those gains and continuing that uh, trajectory of growth is going to be a totally different story. Um, you know, we've seen many observers have suggested that it's going to be tough to continue to sign up merchants uh, at the same pace as, uh, as we've seen uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in recent months. And as well, there's also questions about, you know, once vaccines are fully rolled out and once we are uh, once again comfortable uh, going into brick and mortar stores, how will that change the dynamics of, uh, of e-commerce? E so already we were sort of a bit of on, on the cusp of, uh, of, of, of a new, uh, new, new chapter in, in Shopify's history. Now suddenly when you have this large void in Shopify's C-suite uh, that, uh, that will be filled by, uh, by a new, uh, I have no question, it's going to be filled by, you know, a new crop of very accomplished and and, uh, and exciting individuals to watch. This really does have the potential to be sort of a major inflection point uh, in Shopify's corporate history. That's great, great analysis. Uh, thanks to both. Uh, let's go uh, to story number two, which is about Ottawa Gatineau's uh, hot cottage market. Uh, so, you know, uh, at least I am with this uh, slightly warmer weather uh, looking forward to summer, and that means summer often means in the national capital or region cottages. Uh, our colleague Caroline Phillips took a closer look recently at the red hot cottage market. And we know that real estate across the board has been uh, on the rise, but specifically, you know, cottages are getting a lot of attention today. Peter, uh, maybe explain some of the structural shifts that might be behind this hot cottage market. 
There's a few, you know, if you look beyond uh, just those general trends that you, you mentioned, there's a few really interesting uh, factors that play that that suggest there might be a bit of a permanent shift uh, happening uh, when it comes to recreational properties. So just starting off on the demand side, you know, a lot of these uh, these communities are about four to five hours from uh, from, uh, you know, the greater Toronto area. Traditionally, you know, if if you're sort of thinking that that might be a little bit too far to drive if you're living in Toronto, just to go up to the cottage for a weekend. If you then need to go back and work in an office in uh, in the GTA Monday to Friday, but you know with the pandemic and this widespread acceptance now of remote work, suddenly it's a lot more acceptable to maybe not be you know at uh, at your residence um, Monday to Friday and uh, to be at the cottage for longer periods of time. And suddenly now that four to five hour drive uh, it's uh, it's a lot it's a lot easier to justify if you're going to be there for uh, for larger longer blocks of time. So the pool of perspective buyers has gotten much, much, much larger. Now, on the supply side, um, not unlike homes, you know, here in uh, in Ottawa proper, there has been a, um, far fewer properties being brought to market, according to uh, to a lot of the realtors that uh, that we spoke to. One of the factors uh, behind that is that there's been a shift in the mentality of uh, of cottage owners, uh, in that a lot more are holding on to their properties. They're looking at them as an investment rather than just uh, just a cottage, just a, a recreational property. And what that means is that they're looking at their cottages as an asset. They want to hold on to it uh, in anticipation that's going to appreciate in value, and as well as possibly be something that can be passed on, you know, to to their uh, to their children as part of, uh, of a nest egg, part of uh, of uh, an inheritance on the financial side. So, so those those are two trends that uh, certainly the, uh, the this, it seems that could uh, permanently uh, change uh, change the uh, the um, recreational property real estate market in the region. I, I completely get one of your one of the points you brought up. So if uh, if a cottage was two to three hours away and you didn't want to do that for a shorter time period, you know, in this post-pandemic world, maybe you spend Friday and Monday or something like that at the cottage. And if it, that that drive seems a lot more uh, tolerable if uh, if it's for a few days up there as opposed to uh, 48 hours. So make makes a lot of sense. It'd be interesting to uh, continue to uh, watch this. So Peter and Dave, before we explore the last story of the day, I want to bring in our legal expert from Nelligan Law, one of our sponsors. Uh, Jim Anstey is an associate lawyer in the employment law group at Nelligan. Welcome to you, Jim. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, Jim, listen, the, the big news undoubtedly is this third wave. And um, you know, if if you're like me, I'm feeling a little bit discouraged. Sometimes it it seems like we're not making progress. But in fact, uh, you know, this week marked a milestone. Canada has now uh, delivered uh, 10 uh, million doses of uh, of COVID-19 vaccine. So that's good news, Jim. Um, however, the vaccination of of people, including employees, does create some interesting employment law questions. So um, there are probably employers out there thinking. Uh, you know, can there be restrictions on employees returning to the workplace uh, if they're not vaccinated? Can you talk about that for a minute, Jim? Absolutely, and uh, and you're right. This is a this is a complex, um, novel uh, legal issue. Uh, we haven't dealt with anything like this in over over a hundred years. Uh, the last pandemic was the Spanish flu, um, and our laws are just not designed to deal with these things. So when we had the um, when we got the news about vaccines coming on board, we did start to get questions uh, even last December from employers about you know whether they could mandate vaccines in the workplace and and that sort of thing. 
Um, and, you know, the employment bar is not, um, you know, we're not all on the same page about what employers can, can do here, but, um, you know, em employers nonetheless need to, need to know, you know, what they can do. Um, the advice that, that I've been giving is, um, you know, mandating vaccines is probably not going to be upheld by a court. Rather, the better strategy is going to be to encourage your employees uh, to get vaccines. And, you know, in, in the case where employees say, you know, no, I'm not going to get a vaccine, uh, the, the best thing to do is probably education, refer them to, uh, you know, public health guidelines and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, as an employer, you do have an obligation to, uh, you know, maintain the safety of your employees. So if some employees aren't getting vaccinated, there may be things that uh, you want to do to, you know, make sure your, wake, your, your workplace is safe. For example, if you have another employee who can't get a vaccine, uh, you know, because of a religious reason or because of a health issue, um, then, you know, you don't necessarily want to have that person come in contact with another person who's not vaccinated. So, uh, you know, uh, while mandating vaccines may not fly, certainly outside of the healthcare sector or where you're taking care of uh, vulnerable individuals, there are things that employers, I think, can do. That's, that's excellent advice. So I think what I heard from you, Jim, is um, you can't mandate it, uh, but you can encourage it. And if someone isn't vaccinated and returning to the office, um, you might want to create a little bit of uh, physical distance between them and uh, unvaccinated employees. Uh, did I get that right? Well, exactly. I mean, we just we just don't have the uh, the laws in place to tell us exactly what to do. And, and to be fair, I mean, this is an evolving situation. And the advice I give to employers a lot is, you know, follow what public health is telling us to do. They're the experts. If, there's, if any of this ever gets challenged in court or with an arbitrator, um, what public health is telling us to do is going to be what the, the court or the arbitrator uh, considers. Well, that's great, uh, great advice. Thank you, Jim, for being with us and providing that great uh, legal advice and uh, continued uh, strength to you and your colleagues at Nelligan. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you. So let's go to our third and final story of the episode. This story is about uh, a company called, called Hyperion, and they've landed $2 million in seed round to build out a carbon capture system. And Dave, uh, I'm going to go to you on this. You recently took a, a closer look at the clean tech firm that landed a couple million dollars, uh, as indicated. Uh, Hyperion Global Energy has a technology that collects collects carbon dioxide from factory smokestacks and turns it into materials to be used in consumer products. Obviously, carbon capture, Dave, is a super important uh, technology to have. Uh, but what's all the hype around Hyperion, Dave? Well, Mike, uh, as you say, there is uh, some growing hype around Hyperion. It is a, uh, I mean, for a company that hasn't been around all that long, it's really starting to make some waves. And once you kind of, uh, once you kind of dig under the hood, a little bit, open up the hood and, and and find out what's going on here. You can see why. Um, their their slogan kind of is "We turn dirty air into dollars," and right away that's uh, that's going to grab uh, that's going to turn some investors' heads and grab the attention of of people in the uh, well, not not only in the clean tech community but outside it as well. Because um, Hyperion's technology, this ability to you know collect all these um, greenhouse gases, the CO2 that's, you know, uh, that has become a, 
obviously a growing issue every year with global warming. Um, and and, it, and the, the fact that they're able, they've, they've discovered a way to be able to take this stuff and turn it into something that people want to buy is really, uh, in a sense, the holy grail almost of, um, of, of this sort of technology. This is what people have been trying to do for years, figure out how we can make it, um, you know, uh, uh, how we can make the market excited about, about this carbon capture technology. They seem to have figured out a way. Um, what, they, what, it, what they end up doing, their technology, is it turns carbon dioxide into, um, into materials such as one of them be calcium carbonate, uh, which is um, uh, it's a it's a uh, it's a compound that you find in all kinds of things, uh, everything from toothpaste to cement, other green building materials. Um, I mean, paint, uh, even animal feed. All of this stuff has calcium carbonate in it. This is a multi-billion-dollar market. Um, so if you can turn carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas that's 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 uh, that's that's contributing. Uh, heavily to global warming and turn it into a product like this um, that can be used across a whole range of industries. Well, you're really on to something. And um, and that's what Hyperion uh, says it's done. It's now part of a, uh, it's actually part of a, of a, uh, of a new accelerator of that, that's, uh, that includes just 10 companies from around the world who are, um, who are building out uh, clean tech solutions. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's attracted the, um, uh, the support of the Capital Angel Network, which gave it its biggest investment ever, $800,000 in its new seed round. Um, uh, companies like Enbridge and Shell are contributing to it. Uh, so, I mean, uh, when, when you get names like that on board, you know, you must be on to something. And, uh, and they really feel like, like they, they, they really are on to something. And, and they're not the only you know, kind of Ottawa-based firm that, that's involved in this. There's a company called Planetary Hydrogen in town here as well that's working on its own carbon capture technology. Um, and it's going to take all kinds of solutions. Uh, it, uh, it's not just going to be one uh, one thing to uh, one thing to crack this code, so to speak. Uh, Hyperion's co-founder, Heather Ward, uh, she, she put it really well. She said there's not going to be one silver bullet to solving the carbon em emissions problem it's going to take a whole bunch of companies working kind of, you know, um, competing, but also working together in a sense to help help this sector grow and fulfill its potential. And Ottawa looks like it's going to play a really big part in that, uh, Mike. And that's and that's really exciting. I think um, think for the future of clean tech here in Ottawa, that we can we can be playing such a central role in uh, in an emerging industry like this. It, it reminds me of the federal budget, of course, had all sorts of uh, green energy uh, programs. So wouldn't be surprised, you know, to see some of those Ottawa companies benefiting for that. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for all that, Dave. And uh, Peter, before we wrap up here, I, I want to give you a second to talk about OBJ's quarterly news magazine that hit the streets just a few days ago. It's a big, thick 80 page paper, uh, the biggest, uh, we think, in, in a decade or more. So that's uh, that's quite a milestone for OBJ. But what's inside that issue, Peter? 
So our cover story is our annual list of Ottawa's fastest growing companies. This is a uh, an annual uh, feature uh, that we've done for quite a long time. I not only is the paper a record size, I'm pretty sure that this we receive a record number of applicants uh, this year. And what really struck us about our list of the top 10 fastest growing companies is that historically tech companies really dominated the list. And usually there'd be, you know, one or two uh, non-tech firms. This year, the diversity of companies that uh, that made the list is just uh, remarkable. Um, there's a last mile delivery service, a distillery, a skincare products, as well as some some software firms. So it's really, really encouraging just to show the uh, the diversity and strength of, uh, of Ottawa's economy. There's several other uh, great uh, special sections uh, in, the, in the news magazine. Our uh, quarterly regional coverage takes a look at how rural tourism operators are uh, reinventing their offerings uh, in an era of, uh, of COVID-19. And our special HR update uh, section as well takes a special look at uh, remote, uh, remote hiring. And I will just say one of my favorite uh, features uh, in the news uh, magazine is uh, Ron Corbett's uh, feature. Um, of course, we know that, you know, it's been a constant theme in our discussions that the pandemic has affected different businesses, different sectors in, in different ways. One of the arguably hardest hit uh, sectors have been retailers, specifically here in Ottawa in the downtown core. There's an entire subsector of the retail industry that really is positioned to serve all those thousands upon thousands of workers who traditionally filled all those office towers. So Ron literally went for a walk through some very empty downtown Ottawa streets and spoke to them to understand what their reality is like and, and really what the outlook is uh, for them. So uh, so please, uh, if you can't uh, get your hands on a print copy because you're you're at home, uh, go to obj.ca, just scroll to the bottom of the footer and you'll see the, uh, the little thumbnail there. And of course, the other thing I want to mention, uh, Mike, you alluded to the federal budget. Um, you uh, helped to organize a our post-budget breakfast. It's been a very busy spring for uh, for, uh, for for events. But um, what else is happening? What uh, what are you and uh, the Ottawa Board of Trade uh, working on that's on the, the horizon as far as events go? Uh, thanks for the question. We, we've got a big event, uh, a virtual conference. First time we've done a virtual conference. We've done lots of virtual events and we're uh, embracing a new platform that kind of looks like you're walking around uh, actually in a in a conference uh, hall. So it's kind of cool. Anyway, the, the conference is called the City Building Summit. Uh, it's the second time, we, in fact, we've done it. And it's a I find a really interesting vision behind this because it's really bringing uh, together uh, land developers, architects, uh, municipal officials uh, from the city, NCC, uh, engineering firms, so on and so forth. And it's a it's a wide ranging uh, discussion uh, about the future of Ottawa, not only from a land development point of view, by the way, but from a social perspective. Um, we have a, a celebrated uh, urban planner, Jennifer Keysmat. Uh, coming to us uh, virtually, of course, from from Vancouver. So she'll be the keynote kicking it off. And that's coming up again on Friday, April 30th. So it's just around the corner. Uh, still tickets left, by the way, and we're, we've are we got strong uh, interest. So thanks for that uh, question. We'll have a mayor's breakfast, by the way, uh, speaking with uh, Cameron Love. Uh, Mark Sutcliffe from uh, one of my, our colleagues at the Ottawa Business Journal will be speaking to the CEO of Ottawa Hospital uh, uh, just coming up uh, on on the 29th of April. So listen, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. A reminder that this podcast can be watched or listened to in various ways. If you like the visual uh, medium, uh, then tune into this uh, YouTube channel. Be sure to follow and like. If you prefer audio uh, format, then you can listen to us on all popular podcast uh, platforms such as Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, and Twitch. I encourage you, if you're a 
hardcore local business news junkie like us, uh, visit obj.ca throughout your workday for the very latest in local business news. And if you don't want to miss any headlines, then uh, the thing to do is to subscribe to OBJ Today email newsletter uh, sent every weekday, Monday to Friday in uh, the late afternoon, early evening. And you can go to obj.ca newsletter slash sign up. Uh, that's uh, that's going to be on screen for you. On behalf of my colleagues, uh, Peter and Dave, thanks for tuning, tuning in today. Uh, please stay connected to OBJ and also stay healthy. Bye-bye. Behind the Headlines is brought to you by Nelligan Law, Ottawa's fierce, proven, and human law firm. Visit them at nelliganlaw.ca.